0: Can you imagine anything more countercultural right now than someone to sit and really listen to another person through a book?
1: You know, novels are a special form of literature because they are capable of deadly serious psychological and philosophical explorations of the human predicament.
0: And I think what happens when you lose a culture of reading, everything becomes ephemeral And
2: everything is forgotten very, very quickly. We know that the people who are leading are the good communicators and communication is mastery of language. The beauty about reading though, is it begins to chisel away at that stone that blocks the cave door.
0: Welcome to reading and the common good, a new podcast from the Trinity forum, where we discuss the enriching and humanizing activity of reading deeply and well. We encourage you to put the ideas discussed in today's conversation into practice by hosting your own reading group. Check out ttf.org bookclub book club for help getting started. In today's episode, Trinity Forum President Cherie Harder will speak with scholar Alan Jacobs about the ways that reading old books, what Jacobs refers to as breaking bread with the dead, can not only expand our understanding and point of view but even strengthen our sense of tranquility and rootedness in the midst of difference and misunderstanding. This is what Jacobs calls our personal density. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation that was recorded on October 2nd, 2020. You can find the full conversation with video and transcript on our website. Here's Cherie Harder introducing Alan Jacobs.
2: Alan is a scholar of English literature, a writer, and a literary critic who serves as the distinguished professor of the humanities at the Honors College at Baylor University, having previously taught at Wheaton College for nearly 30 years. A prolific author and a wide-ranging thinker, he's written for publications as broad as The Atlantic, Harper's, Comment Magazine, The New Yorker, The Weekly Standard, and The Hedgehog Review, among many others as well as publish 15 different works in literature, theology, and cognitive psychology, including How to Think, The Book of Common Prayer, A Biography, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, which we discussed with Alan just a couple of months ago, and of course, his brand new release, Breaking Bread with the Dead, A Reader's Guide to a More Tranquil Mind, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Alan, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Sherry. It's great to be here.
2: Well, it's really good to have you. So of the many books you have written, I'm betting this is the first time you've written what you called a self-help book. (laughs) And you make the interesting argument that engaging with old books, even with their often unjust, racist, or otherwise retrograde assumptions or arguments, instead of being triggering, actually helps one stay tranquil in the here and now. So why would old books promote serenity?
1: Yeah, um, thank you. That's a first of all. Thanks for the wonderful introduction, uh, which I think shows that um, you get exactly what I'm trying to do in the book. And and thanks for this question. I I think that um, first of all, I do want to say that I really am kind of serious when I call it a self-help book. Uh, there are many many different reasons why one might study the past, um, thousands. But I really am focusing on why it might help our uh, what I call our personal density to improve our um, I- increase our temporal bandwidth, and the idea uh, we can talk about those terms maybe a little later on. But the idea goes something like this: when you are engaged with the works of the past, you are dealing with difference. You are dealing with people whose whose whole world is different than yours, people with different experiences, with a different outlook, with different ideas and, but, and you're doing so in an environment that you control. We all know how difficult it can be to try to maintain our patience. Um, we, we certainly don't have any shot at serenity. We're just trying to maintain our patience when we're dealing with people who we strongly disagree with. But when it's the voices from the past and we are visiting their world uh, and, and we assume the posture of of visitors, of guests, then we can, I think, get a little bit of distance on our emotions. They're not going to talk back to us. They're not going to fight back. They're not going to do anything that will hurt us. If if the encounter ends up being a little too intense for us, well, we can just close the book and go away and then come back to it later on when, when we've calmed down a little bit. It is It is... Uh, training in encountering difference, but in a way that we have enough control over that it, it doesn't have to agitate us and frustrate us. But maybe if we do that for a while, we can get a little better at dealing with our immediate neighbors as well.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about those terms and what you mm-hmm. mean by personal density and how it is mm-hmm. either formed or thickened.
1: Yeah, so that, that phrase comes from the American novelist Thomas Pynchon, and it's in one of his novels uh, called Gravity's Rainbow, which is an extraordinarily difficult novel. He, uh, There's a character in Gravity's Rainbow. He's a German engineer uh, named Kurt Mondaugen, and he talks like a German engineer. Uh, and at one point he says, uh, he, he coins what he calls Mondaugen's law, and one of the con- conceits of, of uh, Gravity's Rainbow is that everybody knows it, that it's all, you know, it's totally famous, even though, of course, Thomas Pynchon is just making it up. And, um, and Mondaugen's law goes like this, personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth. And what he means is that if you have greater temporal bandwidth, what he calls the, the width of your now he says, then what that does, when, when your approach to your everyday life reaches into the past and imaginatively reaches into the future, then that increases your personal density. And, and I think maybe one of the best ways to understand what he means by personal density is to think about what the Apostle Paul says when he warns Christians against being blown about by every wind of doctrine. And I think if you're, on, if you're on social media all the time, if you are on the internet all the time, then the, the winds of doctrine, as it were, the winds that, uh, of, of uh, public opinion are blowing really, really hard. And it, if, you, if, if that's where you spend your whole life, you don't have the personal density to resist that the harder those winds of public opinion blow, then the farther you are going to be carried away by them. And so when Mondaugen says, when this character says... Uh, personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth. He's saying that the more you understand about the past, the more you understand about human experience. And by the way, this was equally true of space. Understanding other cultures is extremely valuable, even when they're in our own time. But because we have a kind of a a global culture now, um, getting into the past is the way to get really, really alien experiences, and that gives us some perspective on our own moment. And when we have that perspective on our own moment, then we are able to judge things from a more secure and stable position. We have the personal density that allows us to do that, and we're not just simply being blown about by every wind of doctrine. That's the core idea.
2: So you're a professor and uh, we hear a lot about students objecting to certain old works, uh, feeling triggered and the like. And you've actually made the argument that our information overload now is not unrelated to um, how easily we feel triggered by or defiled by old works. I'd love for you just to discuss that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I. so we we live in, uh, there are two phrases that I borrow from sociologists to describe our moment. One is uh, Hartmut Rosa is a German sociologist who talks about social acceleration, the sense of of, of things continue, not, not just going fast, but getting faster and faster and faster and our difficulties in keeping up. And uh, a, a French uh, thinker named Paul Virilio, who, who says that, the peculiar thing about that experience is that we all feel that we are at a frenetic standstill, which I think is a great phrase, a frenetic standstill, that we're, we're, we feel like everything is just moving a zillion miles an hour, but we're actually not going anywhere. We're just kind of stuck in place. And I think that's because we, everything is coming at us so fast, we're getting so overwhelmed by the information that we hardly have the opportunity to do anything except just kind of deal with it. Um, I was writing something about this a few weeks ago, and I was uh, I was I was writing the uh, the phrase the fire hose of information, and then I looked down and uh, looked at my screen, and I saw that I had written the dire hose of information, <laughs> and I think that's actually a pretty good word for it. <laughs> we're 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 dealing with the dire hose, mm-hmm. and when that's happening, I, I, the mo- our first. Uh, And a very rational response is to practice a kind of triage, like battlefield triage. You say, okay, well, this I'm going to deal with, and this I'm going to set aside for later, and this I'm going to totally ignore. And so when you're having all of that information, somebody comes at you with an idea that's very strange or that at least seems to be offensive, then you're like, nope, nope, not doing that. Ruling that out. Not going to deal with it. Not going to listen to it. And it's really just kind of self-preservation, you know, that makes you that that, that gives you that that um, desire to get away from the thing, especially if that thing feels like it is defiling you in some way. Like this is offensive and disgusting, and and no, I'm not going to deal with that. You know, and you'll hear people say sometimes life's too short to deal with stuff like that. And you know I sort of I get the feeling I get the feeling but we need actually to be able to discern the difference between ideas that are truly offensive and ideas that only seem to be offensive because we actually haven't understood them yet and that is what stepping back and stepping away from the dire hose allows you to do And, you know, as it is with, like, uh, any of us who have had children know that you, you, it doesn't work just to say no to children, you have to be able to give them an alternative. You have to be able to say, don't do this, but do this instead. And adults are exactly the same. Um, You tell them, get off of Twitter, get off of Facebook get off of Instagram. Well, I mean, you can say that, but what are they supposed to do instead? And what I want to suggest is stay away from those things long enough to read something from the past peacefully, quietly, at your own pace. I mean, just the very act of reading a book itself, being disconnected from the internet while you're reading, that's already a step in the right direction. And then... If it's a voice that's going to tell you something you would never in a million years hear uh, on, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, then that's added value. It's just so good in so many ways for enabling us to get out of the dire hose and to uh, then when we come back to it, be maybe a little more balanced and a little more able to make discerning judgments, rather than just have emotional reactions.
2: Let's talk a bit about how one actually reads. And you gave Mm -hmm. a bit of advice to your readers that uh, some people might consider a little bit unexpected, which is you said that so often people are given are encouraged to read old books to set aside their assumptions, you know, to enter into the text um, and enter in the world of the old text. And you said, I think this is bad advice and you advocated for something that you called double reading. What is double reading and how can we do it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I've always thought that, that, that it's bad advice when people say you should suspend your judgments. Uh, you, should, you should set aside your own personal beliefs when you're reading the works of the past. But if you're setting aside your own judgments and you're setting aside your own beliefs, then how are you gonna learn anything from those works that is going to be able to affect you? No, you need to keep your own, your judgments in, in play, but all of them, not just some of them. Um, so I'll give you an example. In, in a cl- I, am, I am so, so blessed to be able to teach old books um, all the time. And um, in, in my class the other day, I was in one of my classes, we were reading Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. And that's not a super old book, but it's, you know, a couple of hundred years old. That's, that's long enough to make it a somewhat different world uh, than the one that we live in every day. And it was really interesting to work with my students over one of the characters in that book, uh, Sir Thomas Bertram, because Sir Thomas is very much a kind of patriarch of the old school, you know, he is a man of dignity. He is a man who values his family's social standing. Um, He he disparages any ideas that would challenge the existing social order. Um, It would be easy to make a kind of, of, uh, you know, bogeyman out of him. But I, I think all of my students, recognized that he's an intensely human character because during the course of the story, he comes to realize how many bad decisions he made in the raising of his children. And at the end of the book, he really has to struggle with this sense of failure, that he, he did so much wrong that he can't fix um, and he, but he takes comfort in the good things that have come about, um, and uh, and and tries not to be made miserable by the bad things, and he's just a, an utterly admirable character, even if he happens to hold a set of views that. Those of us who are more democratically, you know, inclined might not like. We might not want to live in a society as hierarchical as the one that he lives in, and that's totally fine for us to think that the hierarchical structures of that society are not politically and socially ideal. But let's also not set aside our ability to recognize how wonderful it is when a person is actually able to say, "I messed up. I did not act wisely." And I need to act more wisely in the future. How often do we even hear that, right? I mean, that's not the, it's not the most common thing that we hear from anybody these days. Um, and that, by the way, I think is also a little bit related to social media in the sense that you put yourself out there as having a particular position. You know that a thousand people might retweet it. And, and so then the inclination when you're challenged is to try to double down um you know and and justify yourself and defend yourself to see an example of a proud dignified man who has to go back and sit in his room and think i was foolish i was unwise that's a really powerful thing to see and it's something that we can admire even if we don't share his politics and so it's the the the, the idea is not Suspend your beliefs, but keep all of your beliefs in play. If you are democratically inclined and you don't think that a society should be that hierarchical, keep that in play, but also keep in play your belief that it is good to acknowledge with humility your own sins and shortcomings. Um, And that way you can have a really complex and nuanced understanding of the text that actually helps you to have a more complex and nuanced understanding of yourself. That's how I think it works anyway.
2: Before we go to questions from our viewers, I need to ask, I mean, one of the things I've loved about your book is that it's clearly a work of intellectual hospitality describing intellectual hospitality, mm-hmm. You know, both the invitation to give our attention to voices from the past, uh, as well as the invitation to join in a conversation that began long before we did. But for, um, for anyone now, we have an excess of not only legitimate claims upon our time and attention, but an excess of invitations, both from right. the ephemeral and from the substantive and worthy. And it can be very difficult to prioritize what we right. give our attention to. Uh, you've made this in many ways your life's work. How do you decide what invitations to accept first?
1: What I have done over the years is to um, try to pay attention to my own patterns of behavior. And, And what I've gotten better and better at over the years is developing a kind of a sixth sense for what I need to listen to now and what I can set aside. And I just don't know that there's any way to do that except by learning from your own experience. So I think it's not enough just to read, but also to find a way to interact with what you read and record that in such a way that you can see your own history. Um, And again, I think that's a matter of personal density. I feel that having gotten out of the dire hose, uh, I am better able to make decisions that are meaningful and appropriate for me. Um, I've just got more time to think <laughs> about what it is that I want to devote my attention to, and I'm not letting somebody else determine what I should uh, be giving my attention to.
2: Right. So our first question comes from viewer Michael Lundy, and Michael asks. This sort of controlled time travel you advocate echoes Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis's admonition to read old books. I think Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis actually advocated reading at least one old book for every uh, new one. How does this help understand the nature and dangers of the ever-narrowing nowness of today's radicalized political tone?
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, if if I'm remembering rightly, Lewis said that the ideal ratio is three old books for every uh, one new one. So he was he was very committed. There's a there's a passage in in one of one of his books where he says the most significant beliefs of a given period are not the things that they argue about. It's the things that they don't argue about because everybody agrees. Um, that is the 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 key. Uh, I, was, I was I was actually telling my students this the other day, and I said we have these incredibly intense political arguments, but we never have arguments about whether or not we should have an absolute monarchy. That's not that you know that just isn't on the table because there is just kind of this agreement that whatever kind of government that we have, some sort of representative democracy is what what we ought to have, and and that's we don't we don't have to argue about that because. That at least we agree on, and I think the great thing about or one of the many great things about going back in the past is the ways in which it enables you to realize among other things how much we actually do have in common there, there we, we may think we have absolutely nothing in common, but that's because we're only aware of the things that we're arguing about, not the things that we take for granted and so I, I think that in a strange sort of way, recognizing the, 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 the radically alien character of many thinkers of the past ought to enable us to have a little bit more charity towards our neighbors and to find some common ground, maybe not as much as we would like to have, but something on which we might be able to build or at least to have a conversation rather than a shouting match there is a, a this is a story that i've told i think in three different books because I, I love it so much when when machiavelli was exiled from florence he his political allies fell out of power and he lost his place and he had to go out and live in the countryside outside of florence and he talks about how he would go out into you know walk around in the fields but then he would end up kind of gravitating down to a nearby village and there'd be a little, you know, tavern in the village. And he would get into arguments with the agricultural workers. So he's basically getting in these shouting matches with the local rednecks. And then he says, but then I would, you know, I I would embarrass myself, I would behave ridiculously. He says, then I would go home and I would take off my working clothes and I would put on my robes and I would go into my study and there I would encounter the great uh, thinkers and artists of the past, and they would receive me with hospitality and treat me as an equal. And he said, "And this is what I was born to do." Or to do, you know, not arguing with the local drunkards down at the tavern. That wasn't getting him anywhere. But but it's interesting because he kind of says, "I couldn't resist it. I can't resist getting into that sort of thing." And that was the equivalent. It's the 16th century you know, uh, Tuscan countryside version of Twitter, right? where he's, he's having these, these fights. But then he finds, no, there's real dignity and there's real communication to be had in exchanging thoughts with these people. And that I think is the really distinctive thing about old books as opposed to music or the visual arts or especially old book, uh, old music and old art. Those are all wonderful, incredibly powerful things that I would love to talk about them at more length, but I especially like the idea of the voices from the past and uh, the particular humanizing effect they can have upon us. Yeah.
2: So Stephen Watts asks, what authors have most increased your personal density?
1: I think um, the the most important writer for me uh, in my life has been W.H. Auden, and I have been enormously privileged to be able to uh, to study his work, to write about it, to edit. I've edited two of his books, um, critical editions of, of his books, and I've got another one that I'm beginning to work on now. And I think I think one of the reasons for that is that Auden was... Um, his, his best critic, who is also his literary executor, Edward Mendelssohn, said Auden was the first major poet to be completely at home in the 20th century. He didn't spend his time longing to live in some other time in some other place as T.S. Eliot had done and as Ezra Pound had done and as William Butler Yeats had done. He was, he was a 20th century person and he knew it and he was at home but because he was at home in the 20th century he felt free to draw on the wisdom of all the ages and so his uh, just trying to understand his poetry and understanding what it was he was reading and where, you know where these ideas came from and what he's drawing on, that has been an education in itself. And I think it's a great example of what the previous question was about is the, the humility Auden has in in relation to the writers of the past has probably done more to shape my own desire to have a similar humility. I just, he he has just meant the world to me, and I, I'm so grateful that I discovered him for me.
2: So our next question comes from Eric Bateman. And Eric writes, do you, and if so, how do you, see your book jumping the gap between self-help for individuals and help for our common public life? Many of the issues around cancel culture, especially in the university, have to do with questions mm-hmm. of the public good. Is it okay for professors to ask victims of abuse to read texts that might bring Mm -hmm. up painful memories? Is it okay to give disproportionate public attention to authors with problematic views, etc.? Does Breaking Bread with the Dead have anything to say about these sorts of bigger questions?
1: I certainly hope so and and in fact it was written specifically because of this context and uh, I, I, don't, I don't talk about it that directly because I don't want to put people on the spot and I don't want people to feel that they're being judged. But there are certain passages in the book that I quite consciously intended as a response to the impulse to cancel that arises from a feeling of defilement. Um, and so uh, the, the primary example of that is the chapter of my book that deals... Uh, with Frederick Douglass, and especially with his great speech um, that he gave in 1852, I think on uh, what the meaning of the Fourth of July to the slave, and it's it's just an amazing amazing speech it, it, because of of the way that he embodies all of the virtues that I am trying to commend in in my book when. When Douglas says, he says, well, I look at these, the, the, the founders of, of America, and I hear the celebration of what they have done and, uh, on this 4th of July. And he says, It's a day of festivity for you, but it's not for me. It's not a day of festivity for me. And it's not a day of festivity for him because the lack of courage on the part of the founders meant that he was born into slavery um, and meant that, that his escape from slavery was very uncertain. And um, he, he says, I, I, I can't rejoice on this day because while I have my freedom uh many many millions of people with my color do not have theirs and but then he says but you know what i read the works of the founders and i listen to what they said and i realize as he puts it they were great in their day and generation they were truly great um and that balance, right? They were great in so many ways, and yet they fell short in ways that have been catastrophic for people like me. I mean, you know, you could, you could, it would be so easy for Douglas to say, I have nothing good to say about these people. Um, and yet he sees them as people whose ideals were exactly the ideals that they should have had at a time when many people did not have those ideals. The problem is that they did not live up to them as fully as they needed to. And so the balance there between uh, acknowledging the validity and indeed the necessity of the ideals and also acknowledging the ways in which even the best people don't live up to their ideals, that is such a model of charitable engagement Uh, on the part of someone who could claim this, sorry, this is just too painful for me. This is just, there's, there's too much pain here. No, he doesn't do that. He like looks it right in the eye and I wouldn't demand that anybody do that but I think he's a great example. And I think sometimes if people think, and I've been in situations like this with students before where they have said, I don't think I can read this book because this is really painful to me. And you you wanna take that seriously. And sometimes I've said, let's read something else. And sometimes I've said, okay, don't read these parts of the book, but read the rest of it. And sometimes we've come to an agreement that they're gonna read it even though it's painful and we're gonna talk through it. I think in that kind of situation, especially in a university setting or any sort of teaching setting, everything, literally everything depends on whether there is a relationship of trust between the student and the teacher, you can get students to read almost anything if they know that you care about them and that you wish them well and that you want to do everything you can to secure their well-being. If that's if they know that about you, then then they'll go with you into some difficult places, um, and it won't always be easy but it's usually really rewarding for for all of us if we have that that mutual
2: trust. That's great. So our next question comes from Chris Baca, who asks a little bit about the perhaps contrarian nature of a self-help book that instead of talking about (laughs) mindfulness in the moment, looks (laughs) to the past. And Chris asked, do you see the notion of expanding one's temporal bandwidth as being at odds with some of the current notions about living in the present, and if so, why
1: yeah i think I think that a lot of people who talk about living in the present think that they are endorsing mindfulness, but they're actually misunderstanding the concept of mindfulness and they're misunderstanding the concept of living in the present, right that the the um if what you are doing is uh, cultivating a kind of silent meditative um, embrace of the world around you, then you are getting yourself out of the dire hose, right? If you're if you are con if, if instead you're you're texting and you're receiving text and you're and you're doom scrolling is another word that people use uh these days and you're continually engaged in that you're actually not in the moment. You're not in the moment. You're you're not present. You're actually always waiting for the next thing. Waiting for the next thing, right? And genuine mindfulness is uh, is nothing like that. And genuinely being in the present is nothing like that. There is um, there's a sermon, I think about this oh, oh, so often, it's a sermon that Rowan Williams gave about 20 years ago, where he talks about prayer as being like birdwatching. That if you're a bird watcher, you know that you might sit there all day and nothing will happen, right? You'll never see any of the birds that you came to see. Nothing will happen. And, and you have these long, long periods in which you know that nothing will happen. And he said, but in those, in those periods, what you do if you're a, an expert bird watcher is you keep your mind, and I love this phrase, he says, both slack and attentive. That is, your mind is kind of quiet, it's not tense, it's not working things over, but it's still attentive, so that when something does come within your field of vision, you will recognize it. And he says that he thinks that's what prayer is like. Being in the presence of God is like this. He says, you you might have a long, long period in which you're waiting on God and nothing is happening, but then that moment comes and 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 God is present uh, and your mind needs to be slack, but also attentive to be ready for that when it happens. That, I think, is real, really being in the moment. And that is really being present. But that is a discipline that is very difficult to achieve. It's something that I'm certainly not very good at. But... In a paradoxical sort of way, breaking bread with the dead is something that helps me to that. That is, the the habits I learn of patience and forbearance and reflectiveness and uh, not just going with immediate responses or instinctive responses, but having more considered responses, taking, setting something aside for a while to think about it, then coming back to it all of these things are slowing me down and they're giving me more patience. And that is actually all really, really good training for prayerfulness, meditativeness, uh, being genuinely in the moment. So, in a strange sort of way, if you want to be truly present, then it's really good to prepare for that by spending a lot of time in the past.
2: That's great.
1: Many years ago, I wrote a book um, that I called a "Theology of Reading," and in that book, I talked about thinking of books as our neighbors, as temporary neighbors, and um, and to read them uh, with Jesus's great twofold commandment in mind—that the 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 summary of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And loving your neighbor in books is easier than loving the neighbor who is actually right next door and maybe is a little obnoxious in more ways than one. But I would really encourage you to think of treating books as your neighbors and encountering them as practice for loving your more immediate neighbors. If you think of it as a kind of a training in charity, then encountering old books can be even more enriching to you.
2: Alan, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reading and the Common Good, a podcast from the Trinity Forum. And don't forget to check out ttf.org slash book club to find everything you need to start your own reading group.